Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, I've hired a lot of people over the years, and so I've had to wade through countless resumes from job applicants. And maybe you've had to do that in your line of work as well, wade through resumes. If so, you know that people put some pretty strange things on these self-promotional documents, right? In fact, if you don't believe me, just Google resume bloopers sometime and, and you'll see what I mean. Here's some bloopers I, I, you know, I came across when I Googled that. Okay, there, there's a, a woman, a job applicant, who said that some of her positive traits are attention to detail, team player, good work ethic, and attention to detail. <laughs> yeah, you gotta think about that one for a while. All right, then, then there was a guy who said, experience-wise, he's experienced at um, stalking, receiving, and shipping. I'm pretty sure he means stocking, okay? I'm not, I'm not sure anybody's gonna hire a stalker. It was an obvious typo, a typo like the woman who said that her last job, she left her last job for maturity leave. <laughs> or the guy who said he's bilingual, he speaks both English and spinach. I'm not sure what other, other vegetables he speaks. Uh, you know, or, or the, you know, the fellow who said my references are Bill, Tom and Eric, and I don't know their phone numbers. Well, that's really helpful. <laughs> the weirdest one of all that I came across was a guy who sent a plastic foot in the mail along with a note that said, I just wanted to get a foot in the door. That, that's not creative, that's creepy, okay? <laughs> don't do that. So the reason we're talking about resumes here today is because we're about to look at the resume of Jesus the resume for a very important job, the job of high priest. So we are in the third week of a six-part uh, series in the New Testament epistle of Hebrews. So if you brought a Bible, and I encourage you to bring a Bible with you, if you're watching online, uh, push pause until you can grab yourself a Bible. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. This is a Bible-savvy series, meaning, meaning that we're, we're tracking with Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule. So we put together this uh, reading schedule. Our mega goal as a church for this year is to get everybody reading the Bible. It's Bible Every Day is the name of our goal. And so we hope if we do a series where you hear a sermon on the weekend and then you read the same passages during the week, it will encourage your Bible reading. Uh, this is also a Lenten series, which means it leads up to Holy Week. Okay, we're preparing our hearts through this series to fully celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, today we're looking at Jesus' role as our high priest. This is an important theme in Hebrews 7. In fact, priest or priesthood, those words pop up almost 20 times in this passage. And as I've told you before, whenever you're reading the Bible, look for repeating words or ideas. Now, my guess is that most of us rarely think about our need for a high priest. So when you hear that Jesus is your high priest, uh, you may not find that especially moving. But the fact of the matter is, every one of us desperately needs a high priest. Let me explain why. We all have a broken relationship with God. 
And if you've been around Christ's community for any length of time, you've heard me say this repeatedly. We have a natural bent to go our way instead of God's way. God says, do this, and we do that. So we're constantly running away from God. Happens every day, multiple times a day in every one of our lives. People have been rebelling against God since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, the original couple, God puts them in a virtual paradise, the Garden of Eden. Says, eat any tree from any tree you want except that one over there. And so which tree do they want to eat from? That one over there. And unfortunately, you know, when we defy the giver of life, when we disconnect from the source of life, the consequence is death. And God warned Adam and Eve about that ahead of time. God said to them, you know, the day that you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from, you will surely die. But they ate the forbidden fruit. They did their own thing instead of God's thing. And although they didn't immediately die, God showed up. But you remember what what happened next? God showed up and he immediately made them garments to cover their nakedness, their shame. He made them from the skins of animals. And many theologians point to this as the first example, the start of the sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system is based on substitution. Okay, God is willing to accept the death of an animal in place of the death of of a sinful, a a, a death-deserving human being. Substitution. Substitution worked for Adam and Eve. And then many, many years later, God formalized this system of substitutionary atonement in instructions he gave to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Now, you probably know on the top of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses some moral commandments, Ten Commandments. But along with those moral commandments, God also gave him instructions for how to make atonement when people broke those commandments, when people deserved death, okay, spiritual death, alienation from God, physical death at the end of this life, eternal death, separation from God forever. Here's how to make atonement for those sins. Here's how to place the death on the animal that's about to be sacrificed. So the sacrificial system was spelled out in detail in the opening books of the Bible. Not only the sorts of sacrifices that should be offered, but also the dudes who ought to be doing the sacrificing on behalf of sinful people. Uh, These guys were called priests, and the head honcho for the priests was the high priest. Now, the high priest had a special duty. One day a year... It was a celebrated day called the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the inner sanctum of the worship center. Now, the worship center originally was a tent called the tabernacle. Uh, Eventually, King Solomon came along and built this elaborate permanent structure called the temple. But in both the tabernacle and the temple, there was this inner sanctum called the most holy place. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. No other priest could enter there. And only the high priest could go once a year. One time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would bring the blood of animals that had been sacrificed, and he would sprinkle that blood on on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you probably know what the Ark of the Covenant is if you've read the book of Exodus, following along in our Bible-savvy schedule, or you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Okay, it's this gold-plated box representing the presence of God, and in the box 
were the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments engraved on them. So the symbolism here, sprinkling the blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolism is that even though the people have broken the laws in the Ark of the Covenant, even though they deserve death because they've defied the giver of life, they've disconnected from the source of life, God is willing to accept the blood of animal sacrifices in their place. Now, fast forward hundreds of years, Jesus comes along, and he is now the ultimate high priest. This is a a theme that you're going to see throughout the New Testament book of Hebrews. Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as the one who rescues us from Death, without Jesus, we would be dead, dead, spiritually dead, physically dead, eternally dead. This is why we need a high priest. Now, what makes Jesus the high priest? What makes him the ultimate high priest? Three things on his resume we're going to take a look at today from Hebrews 7. The first qualification is that Jesus has a divine endorsement. So if you're following along and filling out that outline as we go, number one, a divine endorsement. And I'm going to read the text beginning in the middle of verse 19. Hebrews 7, middle of verse 19. Speaking of Jesus as far superior to previous Old Testament high priests, it says, he's a better hope. It's introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay, let me give you some backstory here. How did a person become the high priest in Old Testament times. If you would ask a little Jewish boy in ancient Israel, what do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, he would say the vocation of his dad because it was customary to follow in the footsteps of your dad. So if his dad was a farmer or a fisherman or a craftsman, the little boy knew that's probably what he was going to be. Okay, no little Jewish boy ever said, I want to be the high priest when I grow up. And that's because everybody knew this isn't a job you can aspire toward. This is something you have to be chosen for. And the choosing is done by God. You have to be chosen by God to be the high priest. Now, there are three guys, a story in the Old Testament, three guys who learned this the hard way. You could read their story sometime in Numbers chapter 16. Their names were Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they were jealous of Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses was the leader of Israel at the time, and Aaron, his brother, was the very first high priest. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram thought this was kind of unfair. I mean, who, who gets to be high priest? This should be a democratic process. Anybody ought to be able to rise through the ranks and become high priest. What makes Aaron high priest? Korah was especially honked off because he was a priest, but he was just a garden variety priest, and he wanted to be the high priest. And so Korah and his buddies led a revolt against Moses and Aaron. So Aaron says, okay, Korah, here's what we're going to do. 
Tomorrow, I want you to come to the entrance of the tabernacle, and I want you to bring with, with you an incense burner, okay, with hot coals ablazing. And Aaron's going to bring his incense burner, and then God's going to determine, he's going to choose which of you gets to be high priest, enter the tabernacle, and serve him. So Korah shows up the next day with a fan club. And he's ready to go. I mean, this is going to be showdown at the OK Corral. And he is ready for the confrontation. And just about the time the party is going to begin, an unexpected guest shows up. Number 16, verse 19 says, The glory of the Lord appeared to the assembly. The Lord shows up. And the Lord says, if I could paraphrase his words, He says, okay, everybody take two giant steps away from Korah. Now, how many of you know when God Almighty says, don't go near that dude, that dude's in trouble, all right? And that's exactly what happens. An an earthquake comes and swallows up Korah and his entire fan club. And you you could just imagine Moses turning to the crowd and saying, okay, who else wants to be high priest? You know, I don't see any hands, Does this mean maybe we let God do the choosing? See, the high priest was chosen by God. Now, leap ahead hundreds of years to the time of Jesus. And once again, the method of selecting a high priest was up for grabs. In fact, in Jesus' day, the the office of high priest was in the hands of a family who had bought control of it. They had paid cash for the job. But the writer of Hebrews points out that the high priest's job was not up for sale. You know, that God was still in charge of the selection process, and God had decided to fill the position with his son, with Jesus. And God had emphasized, God had underscored that Jesus was his choice for high priest by the accompaniment of his endorsement with an oath, with an oath. Now, you probably saw that word oath pop up four times in a couple of verses that I read to you a few moments ago. Again, whenever you see a repeating word or idea, you know that God is emphasizing something. So Jesus gets a divine endorsement with an oath. Important side note here. You know, just because Jesus was chosen by God to be high priest, this divine endorsement accompanied by an oath, it doesn't mean that God forced Jesus to take the role. I mean, we're, we're going to see as we continue our, our study today that the job of high priest would cost Jesus his life. So this wasn't some hoity-toity position. I mean, this isn't like getting chosen to be prom king or president of the PTA or the boss at your, your, your workplace. This is more like getting chosen to lead the D-Day invasion. You know, being told that you're going to lead the charge across the beaches of Normandy that are mined. And then you're going to scale the cliffs as enemy planes are strafing you and uh, machine gunners are unloading on you from protected bunkers. Okay, who wants the job? It was a suicide mission. Listen, friends, Jesus knew that the role of high priest would cost him his life. But when God said, I've got a job for you, Jesus said, I'm all in. In fact, these are exact words in Hebrews 10, verse 9. Then Jesus said, here I am. I've come to do your will. 
Now, the reason I'm making this you know, such a big deal at this point is that some critics of Christianity say that the story of the Bible is one of cosmic child abuse. Have you ever heard that? Cosmic child abuse. Because God the Father knew that he was sending his son to earth to suffer torture and a cruel crucifixion. What father would do that? So it's a wonderful thing, the critics say, that God would so love the world, he wants to rescue us from death. But God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only son? What father would do that? You know, without Jesus having any say in the matter? Oh, but wait a minute. Jesus did have a say. And Jesus said, yes. Jesus said, yes. The apostle Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself, his choice, the father's endorsement. But when the father endorsed him with an oath and said, but it's gonna cost you your life, Jesus said, I love those people so much. I'll do it. He loves you so much that he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Here's a second qualification. First is a divine endorsement. Second is an indestructible life. Pick up the text again. We dropped off at verse 22. Let's pick it up at verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, again, if you're looking for repeating words or ideas, you, you, you see here in verse 24, he lives forever. He's got a permanent priesthood. Verse 25, always lives to intercede for them. If you go back up in the text, we didn't read verse 16, but back in verse 16, the writer speaks of Jesus as having an indestructible life, okay? By way of contrast with the Old Testament high priests whose lives were fleeting, whose lives were transitory, Okay, the very first Old Testament high priest, as I've already said, was Moses' brother Aaron. Aaron served as Israel's high priest for 40 years, all during those years when they wandered in the desert because they'd been kept out of the promised land due to their lack of faith and obedience. But at the end of the 40-year period, Aaron's about to die, and so Moses walks Aaron up to the, the top of a mountain, Mount Hor, along with his son Eleazar. And at the top of the mountain, Aaron passes away. And so Moses takes the priestly garments off of Aaron and he places them on Eleazar. And when Eleazar comes down from Mount Hor, he is now the high priest. And he serves for a number of years, all those years that Israel is entering the promised land and settling the promised land. But then Eleazar dies and his son Phinehas takes over. And then Phineas dies, and on and on and on it goes. A Jewish historian, first century historian, by the name of Josephus, says that between the time of Aaron and the middle of the first century, there had been 83 high priests. 
83 high priests. So just about the time a high priest hit his stride, just about the time he got the hang of the job, just about the time he got to know the people he was serving, he would pass away and the baton would get passed to somebody else. Now, by way of trite analogy here, have you ever had a service provider, somebody who, who you really love, they did such a great job for you, a mechanic, an insurance salesman, a math tutor, and for some reason they had to move on. Maybe they moved out of the area, uh, maybe they were older and they retired, maybe they even passed away, and it was like, ah, oh, now you gotta start from scratch. I remember several years ago when I had to do that with with a plumber. I had a plumbing problem, and I would usually call up my friend Dave and say, Dave, I got this problem, but Dave had just retired, and now I wasn't sure who to call. I mean, Dave had been my plumber for 30 years. Our first house was 100 years old, and Dave had replaced every inch of pipe, every bit of plumbing, every plumbing fixture in, in the house, in our current house. Anytime there was a clog drain, anytime there was a garbage disposal that went down or a, a, a water heater that had to be replaced, I would call Dave, and Dave would be there within the hour, and he would get the job done. But now, now who do I call? Who do I, have you ever had that kind of situation? Maybe it's been more serious, not just a plumber. You know, what, what if it's a doctor? What if it's a counselor? What if it's someone that you, it's taken a while for you to share your life with and now they've moved on? What if it's your high priest? You know, this intermediary who's responsible for keeping you in fellowship with a holy God, the guy who sees to it that your sins are paid for so, so that you can stay connected, the God, the guy who brings your personal needs before God's throne. I mean, we want a high priest who's always gonna be there, right? Right. The Bible says, that's Jesus. <laughs> Look again at the expressions we highlighted in verses 24 and 25. He lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. He always lives to intercede for us. Now, interestingly, the writer of Hebrews also emphasizes Jesus' longevity with an analogy. Now, we don't come across the analogy in the second half of Hebrews 7 that we're looking at today, but it's in the first half of the chapter. The analogy is a guy named Melchizedek who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. Now, you're going to be reading it this week and wondering, who is this Melchizedek dude? Well, he kind of comes out of nowhere. So 2,000 years earlier, during the time of Abraham, the forefather of our faith, uh, Abraham has to intervene in the life of his nephew, Lot. Lot has been kidnapped by a marauding army. And Abraham rescues, he recovers Lot, and he recovers a lot of stolen goods, material goods. And he's heading back home with his nephew and all this treasure, and he encounters a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king of a local city called Salem, and he also happens to be the priest of that city. And so as the priest, he blesses Abraham. He intercedes for him. And as a result of being blessed, Abraham offers him a tithe, 10% of his goods. Okay, so that is the end of the story. We don't read about Melchizedek anywhere else in, in the Old Testament except for one passing line in one of the Psalms. That's it. 
So when we come across his name in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we're left wondering, well, what has Melchizedek got to do with Jesus? And the writer says, well, he's an analogy for two reasons. First of all, Melchizedek, as I said a moment ago, was both a king and a priest. Now, in Old Testament times, somebody might be a king, somebody might be a priest, but nobody was a king and a priest. Okay, you didn't do both roles. There were no king priests around. But Jesus comes along, and he's king of kings. And he's the ultimate high priest, like Melchizedek. But the second reason the analogy of Melchizedek is used is because he comes out of nowhere metaphorically as if he had no beginning and no end. Now, he did. You know, but figuratively speaking, it's like the guy was eternal. We, we don't read about his beginning. We don't read about his end. Jesus literally is eternal. No beginning, no end, an indestructible life. Now, what is the significance of this indestructible life in Hebrews 7? Look again at verse 25. Jesus always lives. Okay, we get that. But so what? He always lives to intercede for us. He always lives to intercede for us. Jesus is constantly pleading our case before God's throne in heaven. Never misses a day. Did you know that part of the Old Testament priest's outfit, these special garments he wore, uh, one aspect was a breastplate, and on the, the breastplate were embedded 12 gemstones, one for each tribe of Israel. And on the gemstones were inscribed the names, the names of the tribes. Now, you know this if you've been doing the Bible-savvy reading. You know that when the high priest went into the most holy place, he had over his heart the names of God's people. And that's what Jesus does with my name. That's what Jesus does with your name if you've surrendered to Jesus as Savior and King. He personally intercedes for us. And do you know the most important aspect of Jesus' intercession? You say, well, I, you know, I hope he's interceding for the job I need, or I hope he's interceding for uh, healing from cancer, or the strength to make it through COVID, or help with a struggling marriage, or acceptance into the college of my choice, or a bunch of other stuff I've been praying about. And those are important things for which I'm sure Jesus is willing to intercede. But there's something, a major part of his advocacy for us has to do with something much bigger than all that. Here's how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, now listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, John, John says that Jesus, our indestructible, ever-living, always-on-the-job high priest, is constantly advocating before the Heavenly Father on our behalf with respect to our daily sins. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying, hey, Father, go easy on him because he didn't really mean it. Is that what he says as our advocate? Does he say, I'm sure she'll do better next time, Father. So give her a break. No. Jesus says to the Father, 
Father, forgive them because they've put their hope and trust in me as their high priest. They've surrendered their lives to me. And so I've offered the ultimate sacrifice that is fully sufficient to pay for their sins. Wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. That is what Jesus is doing constantly, nonstop, every day for you and for me if we've surrendered our lives to him. He is interceding. He's saying, Father, forgive them because of what I've done. You know, which is why John, who, who wrote and told us that this is what Jesus is doing in 1 John 2 and 1 John 1, this is why John says, so if you'll confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. You know, because he's our high priest. Here's a third aspect of his resume. Third qualification. He has a perfect track record. A perfect track record. A divine endorsement, an indestructible life. Thirdly, a perfect track record. Back to Hebrews 7, one last time. Pick it up at verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priest's men and all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who's been made perfect forever. So Jesus has a spotless track record. Verse 26, he is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Last phrase of verse 28, Jesus is perfect forever. Now, why is this so important for Jesus' role as our high priest? Two reasons. One reason makes Jesus the ultimate sacrifice. Makes Jesus the ultimate sacrifice. Now, the Old Testament high priests, before they could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people in the inner sanctum of the worship center, okay, the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, before they could offer sacrifices for the people, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were sinners. And so they were required to do two sets of sacrifices. Jesus comes along and dies once. Now, if Jesus had not been perfect, then his sacrifice on the cross would have merely paid for his own sins, but we'd be left out. But Jesus' sacrifice covers all of us who put our hope and our trust in him because he had no need to sacrifice for himself. Perfect, perfect, sinless. And by the way, Jesus' sacrifice was not only uh, perfect, it was of infinite worth because he's the eternal son of God. When the eternal son of God dies on the cross, his sacrifice is of infinite worth. So it applies to anyone throughout the course of history who's willing to put their hope and their trust in him. So why is it important that he have a perfect track record so he could be the ultimate sacrifice? Second reason his perfect track record is so important is that it makes Jesus the ultimate life coach. Now, what do I mean by that? 
the ultimate life coach. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I preached from Hebrews chapter 2 about Jesus' humanity. And one of the things we learned is that Jesus was tempted in every way, generally speaking, just as we are. Now, that makes Jesus, according to Hebrews 2, an empathetic high priest. Okay, so Jesus, under, Jesus gets it when we're tempted, whether it's by lust or by anger or by depression or anxiety or a bigotry or Jesus knows that temptation. He's an empathetic high priest. But if Jesus had succumbed to temptation anywhere along the line, he'd be an empathetic high priest, but not necessarily a good high priest. Why do I say that? Well, let's say that you have struggled with alcohol, and so you go to AA, and they assign you a sponsor. And in your first meeting with the sponsor, she says to you, well, yeah, last weekend. See, I get you, because last weekend, I got a little tipsy at a party myself. Now, she may be very empathetic as a sponsor, but she's not a good sponsor. Okay, if, if your parents say to you, hey, we want to help you get your driver's license, so we're hiring a private company, and the instructor shows up, pulls into your drive, and he's driving a dinged-up car because he's been in so many accidents. Okay, he might be a very caring, very empathetic driving instructor, but a good instructor? I don't think so. Or a financial investor who's going to invest your, your financial resources and acknowledges to you that she's in a considerable amount of debt herself. You going to go with her? She may be a caring person, but I don't think so. Okay, Jesus is an empathetic high priest. He's been through everything you've been through by way of temptation. But is he a good life coach? Only if he's triumphed each time, and he has. And because he's conquered every temptation that you'll ever face, Jesus is able to offer you wisdom and strength and willpower to say no to sin and yes to God, the ultimate life coach. So we're about to engage in communion, and we're going to sing a song that could have been drawn right out of Hebrews 7. You'll see when we get to the lyrics. Jesus as our high priest. He has a divine endorsement, meaning God chose him, but Jesus said, yes, I'll do it because he loves you so much. Jesus has an indestructible life, which means he is always on the job, 24-7, 365 days a year. Every day of your life, Jesus is interceding for you and saying, Father, forgive them. I've paid the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus has a perfect track record, which, which means he's the ultimate sacrifice and he is the ultimate life coach. Let's bow our heads and prepare ourselves for this time of communion. Uh, Lord God, for those of us who may never have to this point in time surrendered to Jesus, I pray that even now in the quietness of our hearts, we would say, yeah, this is what I need. I need this high priest. I need this son of God who's in my corner, who gave his life for me. And Lord, for those of us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus, but we've been uh, basically ignoring him as our high priest. We've been oblivious to what he does constantly in our behalf. Humble us, give us brokenness, uh, give us an opportunity as we prepare to take communion to look at our lives and say, where, where do you need to do some woodshedding? Lord Jesus Christ, 
Where do you need to make us more like you? We want to yield ourselves to you, given that you care so deeply about us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.